After over 10 years in this business, I've seen a lot when it comes to social media. I've been around for blog spotting and live journaling. I've seen the rise and fall of the Twitter empire. I remember when organic reach on Facebook was a given, and I watched as Instagram morphed from iPhone snaps to carefully posed and perfected images. Now, a lot has changed about the way small business owners approach social media too. Some marketers are still trying to be everywhere at once, while plenty of others are focused on one favorite platform. Some are sharing highly curated content, and others are sharing whatever floats their boats. Perhaps the answer to the question, what works in social media marketing has never been more ambiguous. You're listening to What Works, the show about what's really working in small business today. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. This episode is the finale of our five-part series on trends shaping small business in 2019. If you haven't caught the first four, check out our feed on your favorite podcast player or at whatworkspodcast.com. Now, my prediction for 2019 is that this is the year when many small business owners find their strides with social media. But before I tell you more about that, let's hear from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by Gusto. Now that you've had time to think about what you want from your business in 2019, it's time to take action. And if hiring is on your list, you might be feeling intimidated by the paperwork, the red tape, and the legal hoops you need to jump through. I know I was two years ago when I hired my first full-time employee. Then I found Gusto. Gusto makes it easy. We use Gusto to automatically file and pay our taxes, manage time off, and offer benefits. Plus, listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. So if you're ready to grow your team in 2019, now is the time to start. Try a demo and test it out at gusto.com slash whatworks. That's gusto.com slash whatworks. What Works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks powers brands and businesses that bring people together. When I started my small business, the people I brought together had to jump from platform to platform to interact, learn, and connect. We had one app for online courses, another for events, another for our content, and still another to talk together as a community. None of these apps talked to each other, and most were a disaster on a phone or tablet. And on top of all that, I had to pay for each one separately. Then we found Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks lets us bring our website, content, courses, community, and events together all in one place. Plus, it made it easy to centralize fees and accept payments. Plus, Mighty Networks makes everything we create easy to access on mobile with our own app. Make 2019 the year you streamline the way you do business and build real relationships at the same time. Get started with Mighty Networks free of charge by visiting MightyNetworks.com. Mighty Networks is the easiest way to take your business to the next level. Okay, 2019 newsflash. There is no right way to do social media to support your business. The only way to do it is the way that works for you. That might mean giving it up entirely and focusing on coffee dates, networking events, and online communities. See our trend episode on real relationships with Jordan Harbinger for more on that. But it might also mean embracing a less tidy feed, a more consistent schedule, a more uniform aesthetic, long-form captions, short-form videos, being silly, being an activist, or just being yourself. The power of social media today is in how you make it your own, not in how you try to conform to the norms of your industry or digital space. 
I've talked to a number of small business owners over the years who have found their own unique ways of utilizing social media. I talked to Lauren and Jason Pack, who built a huge global following for their Boston-based gym by sharing educational fitness content informed by their values for inclusivity and positivity. I talked to Elizabeth D'Alto, who has openly pursued authenticity and transparently shared when she's making changes in the way she engages with the channels she uses. But the small business owner whose approach to social media stood out to me the most over the last three years has been Patrice Perkins. Patrice is the founding partner of Creative Genius Law. Now, I've known Patrice for many years, but her social media posts started to pique my interest when I noticed her sharing hyper-informative content based on legal news in pop culture. When a company was getting sued for ripping off a designer or when a video game got served because it might have stolen a performer's signature move, Patrice would write about it at length on Facebook and Instagram. I personally loved learning from these posts, but I was also curious about how this kind of sharing was delivering business results. So I asked her, hear the full interview in just a minute. But first, I'd also love to know what's working for you when it comes to social media. Are you swearing off of it in 2019? Are you embracing a new style? Are you sticking with what you have been doing? Hit me up on Instagram. You can find me at Tara underscore McMullen. That's M-C-M-U-L-L-I-N. Shoot me a message and let me know what's working for you. Now, let's find out what works for Patrice Perkins. Patrice Perkins, welcome to Profit Power Pursuit. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I'd like to set the stage for this conversation by having you tell us more about your vision for Creative Genius Law. Absolutely. So Creative Genius Law, um, first off, like most of us, it's my baby. So the (laughs) vision has um, really expanded over the last few years. And so what we are striving to do is we want to help creative entrepreneurs and businesses protect their creative capital um, in order to expand their impact, preserve their legacy and create generational wealth. So it's really a threefold mission there. And so our vision is that we grow as our clients grow. So I joke all the time and I say our clients never go away and we actually love it that way um, because our vision is that as they grow, we grow with them. We're always there by their side as an um, extended member of their business team. And my very specific hope is um, for my clients is that we move them from true startup um, creative entrepreneur along the path of now being becoming this creative who's protected all of their creative capital. But now they're thinking about how do we really leverage this for our families and for life after us. And so that's what we're looking to do. Phenomenal. I have just, I have loved watching your vision for this company grow over the last few years um, and just, and hearing more about your clients. And so actually, before we dive into like the meat of this conversation, I'd love to actually have you talk a little bit more about who your clients are too. I don't know if you can name names of companies that, that you advise, but uh, if you could just tell us more about the specific types of businesses that you work with and the specific types of legal support that you offer them. Absolutely. So I typically work with clients that are in the very beginning stage of their business. And I would say that's about 80% of the clientele. They're usually starting um, the shift from their business being a hobby while they're working full time. And then they're stepping out into full time creative entrepreneurship. And they are coming across all industries. I really realized early on that my definition of a creative entrepreneur was a little bit non-traditional because it includes your traditional 
traditional creatives, but it also includes people who are maybe in a traditional industry, but a creative mind within that space. So they have a creative solution um, to solving a problem within that industry. So I'm usually with them when they are starting that transition from um, full-time employment to full-time entrepreneur. And then I have a small segment, about 20% of my clientele who are vets. Um, They have been in their business for 10 years, seven to 10 years, but now they are just legitimizing it for lack of a better word. So Mm -hmm. they've never built that core team. And so that's my second group. And so I'm really working with all of them on um, from the very beginning, figuring out what the best business structure is for them. If they have partners, figuring out the best way to structure the collaboration. And then we are talking about their intellectual property, which you know is my favorite topic, Um, figuring out a strategy to protect it, a strategy for long term um, to monetize it. And then um, we are taking a look at their contracts. So if they are a vet and they already have existing contracts, I'm auditing them and making sure that they really protect the client and maximize the long term opportunity from whatever that contract is. Gotcha. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the intellectual property piece, because that kind of creates a nice tie into where I want to take the rest of the conversation. Why is intellectual property such an important part of the work that you do with clients? And why is it sort of such a hot button issue with them too? Yes. So the reason why I got into this was because while I was working full time in my personal network, I hung around with all creatives and they were just creating um, this beautiful work and working really hard, but no one had attorneys. And so when I talked to them about why they didn't have attorneys, it was because they either thought attorneys would restrict their creativity, which could Mm -hmm. be true, right? (laughs) Or um, they just were intimidated by the um, whole process. And so not only did I see them as being vulnerable because they didn't have someone there to protect them, but I really saw the value in what they were creating, not just for now, but for long term. And because they worked so hard, and that's kind of the um, the status quo mentality, you, you work hard because you're doing it for the love of blank. And so they didn't mind the hard work, but I really saw the work that they were putting out there as being a vehicle to really um, kind of take care of them in the future once they got to the point where maybe they were just tired or maybe they did want to shift to other things. And so I credit part of it to my undergrad degree was in econ. And so Mm -hmm. I think that that played a huge role in how I saw the value of intellectual property. And then I read a book um, called How People Make Money from ideas. And it talked about the entire concept of how um, creatives tend to not recognize the value in the their intellectual property. And it kind of compared the creative industry to t- typical um, corporate America and how you have companies like IBM, who that is the very first thing that they think about. And they're putting large budgets toward, towards it. But then you have the independents um, who don't. And it's really for me because of a lack of knowledge. I don't think it's a lack of, I don't think it's laziness or, you know, just not being interested. It's just a lack of knowledge. And so for me, it became the way that I can help creatives not have to work so hard for the rest of their lives. And so for them, I think with the, um, you know, expansion of 
everything being available online, their work being highly visible on a global scale, um, that it became more of a hot topic for them for those reasons, because now they're more sensitive to the fact that, oh, it's not just this local gallery that's showing my work, or it's not just the people in my um, immediate circle who are seeing it, or the folks that I email it to, or my local brick and mortar shop, but it's literally a global audience at this point. And so I think that was where things shifted for them. Yeah. So sort of a fear that, you know, they could be overexposed maybe, or that they could be copied or that exactly. maybe that, okay. All right, cool. Well, that does lead us directly into the next part of the conversation, because I have been fascinated by what you've been doing on social media over maybe the last year, last couple of years, maybe you could tell me exactly when it started, but I read Everything you post on social media that comes, at least that comes across my feed, whether it's on Instagram or on Facebook, you have started creating the most informative, kind of in-depth, almost long-form social media posts specifically around intellectual property, or those are the ones anyway that, that mm-hmm. catch my eye. I don't, I don't know if there's more than that. Um, wh- what gave you the idea to start uh, getting into kind of creating that type of content for social media. Um, well, yeah, let's, let's just start there. What, what gave you the idea to, to just kind of start explaining intellectual property law on social media? You know, it really was the outcome of me just deciding to speak about things that were interesting to me. Um, I have been active on social media since the beginning of my business. And it was in an area where, um, to be honest, I didn't really see the real value because I wasn't seeing any return. And I'm not necessarily speaking return in terms of clientele, but I didn't necessarily see um, the return in terms of more eyes on um, creative genius law or more you know, people on the email list at the time I had a blog and I didn't see the return in terms of more people reading the blog. And so it was something that I had given up on um, just because I didn't, I wasn't able to see the value for a law firm. And so the shift happened when I was at Creative Live and this is not a paid plug, you guys. I was at Creative Live a few years ago, and um, I, I think it was the How to Build a Standout Business. And we talked about my digital strategy, and um, the component that was missing for me was I wasn't active on Instagram. I don't even think I had an, I had just started an Instagram account, but I hadn't done anything with it. And so we kind of fleshed that out at Creative Live. And so when I walked away from there, I walked away pretty clear that I was going to have a firm presence on Instagram. But then the issue became, well, how do I fit this in within everything else that I'm doing. I didn't necessarily want to outsource it because I had to, like most small business owners, really pick and choose where I spent um, those marketing dollars. And so for me, those dollars were spent in other areas, believe it or not, like direct mail, Um, Mm -hmm. but in other areas. And so I decided that I needed to do my own social media in a way that worked for me. And the best way to do that for me was with no strategy. And I know that this... It's probably dangerous territory because everything should be strategic, right? But I'm a full-time attorney and I'm building the law firm. And so I had to figure out how do I do this in a way that doesn't feel like too much
much pressure that doesn't um, create something that I know I can't keep up with. And it was literally Patrice, when you, when you roll over in bed and you read something that's really interesting to you, just do the post right then and there and just share your insights. You're not going to think too much about voice because when your voice is authentic, um, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to, you know, kind of um, censor the content or filter it in any way because you're doing what you love to do in your personal life. And so when you roll over and read your nerdy IP news, just share your insights on it. And that's literally what I did. I love that. And to me, that absolutely is a strategy. I don't think it's that you don't have a strategy. It's okay. that you're, you're just not planning <laughs> things really far out in advance, which is awesome. I don't do that either. <laughs> um, you know, but Roger Martin talks about strategy as being uh, uh, where you're going to play and how to win. And so you decided where to play Instagram based on that being where your cl- potential clients were, the con- type of contacts that you wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And the how to win is creating these really in- informational, um, but passion driven posts that are super engaging. So tell us, like, can you kind of, uh, just because maybe not everyone has gone and immediately looked you up on Instagram right now, Mm -hmm. um, tell us what sort of your typical intellectual property, social media post looks like, um, and, and how you go about kind of constructing it again, not from like a, Mm -hmm this is my grand social media strategy, but just like, this is what ends up on the page and this is what's working. Yep. So one of the big things with intellectual property is that it's an, it's an area that feels above most folks head. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to really call out how we experience it and we're all kind of touching it in everyday life outside of our own businesses. And so through my posts, I wanted to make it really tangible. And so um, one of the things that I would do is I could be watching a show like, oh God, what's the um, HBO show where the guys had a startup company, Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, so I could be watching a show like Silicon Valley, which I love. And so they all of the time would have these different kind of IP related topics that would come up. They had an episode, I think, called non-disclosure agreements. And so I could just be watching something like that. And then my brain is racing and a lesson comes from it. And I'm like, oh, well, this is why, um, you know, they had them sign the NDA because of this. But this is a teachable moment for someone. So I literally just pull it from whatever I happen to be watching at the moment. Um, And so the most recent one was that finesse video with Bruno Mars and Cardi B. So I don't Mm -hmm. know if you guys are fans, but um, that was an homage to In Living Color, which was a 90s sketch comedy series. And when I watched that, I saw all of these kind of elements from the original In Living Color set, um, the original kind of choreography. And for me, it became more than just a music video. I'm like, wow, this is a great copyright lesson. (laughs) So the post became, what are the um, lessons we can learn from copyright Um, fair use and licensing from this video. So I just pull it from everyday inspiration. And then on top of that, I am reading um, legal industry news. And so occasionally I may do a case update. But again, it's something that I feel is really kind of can be tangible for folks. So it may be something like the Forever 21 and Puma legal battle, something that I know, you know, if if you don't shop at Forever 21, maybe your daughter does or your niece does, and it may strike your 
um, interest for you to want to learn about this legal battle between them and Puma. Whereas if I was speaking about something um, about a remote brand that you maybe don't feel a connection to, then you're less inclined to want to learn more about it. Brilliant. I just, I love it because it is so obvious how much you're geeking out on (laughs) each post. And to me, like that geeky element is just so like, it's the, it's that, um, element of enthusiasm that makes it so attractive that just really sucks you in. Um, and Sean is very, uh, will always say, you know, he will, he will sit and listen to anyone geek out on anything because it's, mm-hmm. it's that passion that just, that really draws you in. So I, I think it's a brilliant strategy. Um, are you repurposing the content anywhere? Are you taking it from Instagram and putting it anywhere else? So that's a great, great question. So for the last year and a half, it's really just been about, let me just post what I'm moved by. If people love it, great. You know, if people don't love it, you know, that works as well because I, you know, I just posted what I was moved by. Um, this year is the first year that now that I'm seeing that that has really translated into um, interest in the topic and people really taking the information and absorbing it. Um, it's also translated into, you know, people booking um, consults with me and people becoming clients. So now that I'm seeing all of that this year, I did develop a full strategy around it. And so for instance, that, um, finesse video that I spoke about a few minutes ago, it started off with a post, but that post got a lot of um, buzz and feedback and people were in my direct messages about it. So then it became a special edition of the legal coffee chat, which we actually just did um, yesterday evening. And so I had 26 people registered, about 18 people showed up um, for that legal coffee chat. And I really dug in in more depth about the lessons from that video. Okay, so let's back up for a second. What's the legal coffee chat? So the legal coffee chat actually also came about um, from Creative Live when we were really trying to figure out the best way for me to market and to market my company in a way that felt authentic and that really was a good fit for me. Um, What came out of that was that I really connect well with people one-on-one and with small groups. I'm truly an introvert. And so I kind of clam up when I'm just put in a big crowd at a large conference. Um, I don't work well like that. And so from that discovery um, came the legal coffee chat. So the legal coffee chat was saying, hey, let's make this legal thing a friendly conversation between two friends over a cup of coffee, whether it's in person. And I have done them in person. I've done them um, in the living rooms of clients where they've invited other friends um, who are creative entrepreneurs to come sit in. And I've done them virtually. And so I do a mini kind of, masterclass situation on a specific topic, but then it turns into a Q of A. We may do some role playing, um, but the goal is for us to break down the barriers and to have a friendly conversation about legal topics. That is so cool. And I I love that as a way to repurpose content because Mm -hmm. you're grabbing email addresses that way too, at least Mm -hmm. if you're doing it virtually. And if you're doing it in person, you're probably capturing a lot more than an email address. That's Mm -hmm. incredible. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the specific results that you've gotten from uh, your social media strategy. And I am going to call it a strategy. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, So uh, have you booked new clients? What, What does the kind of the 
customer discovery, customer journey look like from engaging with one of these posts to hopping into your legal practice in one way or another? Yep. So we've tested a couple of different things. So the first thing that we've done is on a post, we would just say, you know, and then call us. So I would have the mini case study. And then I would say, if you're interested in um, working with us about on the copyright issues in your business, then give us a call now and start the intake process. So we would literally be by the phone waiting for people to call us because we realized that sometimes people don't necessarily want to send an email because maybe they're driving or maybe they have other things going on in the background, but they may be willing to just hop on the phone really quick. And we could hop on the phone and go through the intake with them right then and there. Um, Once they submit the intake, then they're automatically um, given a link to schedule a call with me or um, another attorney. So that's how that looks in scenario A. Scenario B has been um, the example I gave of the legal coffee chat. So now we have the email addresses in the next step. And that I was clear during the legal coffee chat that this is for people who want to learn more, but who also are interested in working with creative genius law. So what I've done in the past is that I've been really shy about saying, hey, work with me. Um, So I was very upfront about that. And so today those people are expecting an email to schedule their getting to know you call. So that's what we consider to be our initial kind of or second touch point with us is the getting to know you call where it's not a legal consult where we are giving substantive legal advice, but it's getting to know you so we can learn more about what you're working on, learn, talk about how we can maybe help you with that. And then we can both determine whether it's a good fit. And then from there, the client moves to getting a quotes and client engagement letter and all of that. So what has worked incredibly well, Tara, has been having that journey in place. So even last year when, you know, I didn't have the full strategy um, rolled out when I was posting by inspiration, it was usually ended with fill out this intake form here if you're interested or just call us to start the intake process. So there was usually a prompt um, for them to do one of those two things. And so we've seen it work because on our intake form, we do track referral sources. We ask them, how did you find out about us? And all of the social media channels are listed. They can list um, a specific attorney. And so they are coming in and they are saying Instagram. And I actually already have an intake today from someone who was on the call last night. Everything that you just lined up for us is that one, social media can result in client consultations or or at least initial client or initial consultations with prospective clients. And probably from even just one or two posts. The other thing I love about um what you said was how much, you know, how much of these simple, just passion-driven, like this is what I'm all about kind of social media post can spark an urgent need in someone that they might not have even realized was there before. Let's transition into how you're expanding your practice because you've mentioned other attorneys now a couple of times. And I think that, you know, even this idea of growing the vision for creative genius law. You've talked about how uh, you want your clients to be with you forever, which means either you have to stay really small or you have to create more capacity. And I have noticed that you've decided to create more capacity. So 
can you talk about that? What What is your plan? What's your strategy behind expanding creative genius law and bringing in new attorneys? Absolutely. So all along, the plan has been that Creative Genius Law remain a boutique firm, so a very small firm, um, but that we have a presence in the key markets where creatives are. So for us, those markets are the D.C. area, New York, California, um, Georgia, and Texas, um, in addition to Illinois. And so I didn't plan on getting my bar license and um, it being me in every single market because I'm not looking to lose my sanity. And so (laughs) what I decided was that I would identify an attorney in each market. And it was something that I really wanted to take my time with. So I was focused more on just developing the relationships. And if I met an attorney that I really hit it off with, who really seemed committed um, to this audience, then I would explore um, the, uh, the possibility of them working with Creative Genius Law in some capacity. So I kind of started um, more organically in terms of knowing that I wanted um, to bring on attorneys in certain markets, but really just letting the um, natural relationship um, building process take precedent. So where that has led me was that I wanted to identify an attorney who would be the lead in each of these markets. And then Chicago would always remain the hub. So this, it's very important to me that Chicago remain the headquarters. Um, I think that I have this huge thing about supporting um, local talent. A lot of people leave the Midwest to go East or West. And I really want to be um, a support here and support the infrastructure of creative talent here. So Chicago will always remain the hub. So um, the first person who came on board is actually an attorney who's licensed in Virginia, um, Washington, D.C., and Maryland. And the way that that came about, Tara, believe it or not, was Instagram. (laughs) Amazing. So apropos. (laughs) Yes. So I, she would comment um, on my Instagram post. She would share very interesting commentary of her own. Um, She's a tax attorney. She also has um, a background in estate planning and so, and intellectual property. So that kind of legacy piece of intellectual property was really important for her. And so that was how we hit it off on Instagram. And then she came to Chicago and we met in person and um, the way that I'm struggling structuring all of these relationships and she's the she's the primary one right now is that we'll start off of counsel and so in the legal industry of counsel is an attorney who starts off as a contractor and has a um start as a contractor so they may maintain an independent practice with other practice areas, right, that don't overlap with what you do, but they have a continuing relationship with this particular firm. So in this case, Creative Genius Law, where they are referring cases in um, and it's a continued relationship. So the model for me is to start off with of counsel because that gives us a chance to really trial the relationship. And I expect that it will go well, but you don't want to just get in bed with someone right away, for lack of a better term. And then um, the plan is that we move to it being an employee um, relationship. And so that's how I'm planning to handle each market. So I'm currently speaking with someone in California. I am working on my New York bar license, which I should have within the next few months. And then I have another attorney here in Chicago who actually does commercial real estate, but she does it as it relates to creative um, redevelopment 
pilot projects. So um, projects in urban areas that are using um, creativity and arts and culture as an economic revitalization um, tool. And so that was really um, important for me because I don't do commercial real estate, or I should say I do very limited um, commercial real estate. But the fact that our clients could be moving on to development projects because they're all big idea people and we could support that in-house was very attractive for me. So um, I have an attorney here in Chicago who I also did a similar of counsel relationship with. And then we're looking within the next year to kind of advance that relationship. Wow. That is incredible. Thank you, first of all, for kind of explaining the the ins and outs of how the relationships mm-hmm. work and the strategy behind it. And just I, I I love how natural and organic it is. And it really just ties in with the whole rest of this conversation. Absolutely incredible. Uh, so what's next for both you and for the firm? So what's next is we are just focusing on um, fine tuning the foundation And so that we can scale and continue to serve clients well. So I really don't plan to do anything different than what you've seen, Tara. What I plan to do is continue to perfect it because as we grow with um, bringing the additional attorneys in and even bringing more support staff in, it's very important to me that clients continue to have the same experience. Um, In terms of markets, you'll actively start to see um, us really um, kind of market the New York and the um, DMV um, parts of creative genius law. So you will start to see that. um, But the core of our focus is going to be on perfecting what we've created. Incredible. Patrice Perkins, thank you so much for sharing really the nitty gritty of how you're approaching social media right now, how you're building these relationships, and really how you're just continuing to expand the vision for creative genius law. Thank you. Thank you. Find out more about Patrice Perkins and Creative Genius Law at creativegeniuslaw.com. Plus, you can find more interviews with small business owners who share what works for them at whatworkspodcast.com. This interview was originally produced and edited by Laura Finnerty. This episode was produced and edited by Marty Seafelt. Our theme music is by The Shrugs. Next week, we'll be back with new interviews with small business owners tackling challenges, growing their companies, and figuring out what works for them.